There's a number of things that I go look at. For example, does the project have a regular maintenance or patch cycle? Do they actually have a plan for when and how they're going to go do releases? Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. In this episode, we'll talk best practices for evaluating and consuming open source software. My guest is Ryan Ware, Director of Open Source Security at Intel, who will share his wisdom earned over decades working with open source software security. Enjoy, and please join us again for more important open source conversations. I'm talking to Ryan Ware, our Director of Open Source Security here at Intel. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We have a really fun and interesting conversation ahead of us, I think. We're going to lay out Ryan's brilliant plan for using open source software the right way, or at least we're going to aspire to use open source software the right way. I, I prefer aspire, definitely. Yes, exactly. Especially when consuming open source software, which is which is a tough one and, and kind of a hot topic recently. You know, I kind of, I hear a lot, you have to be a careful consumer of open source software, but okay, but how? Tell me how in, in detail and let me take notes. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, there, there's lots of things that you need to do and take a look at, and there's a lot of good reasons as to why. I mean, uh, the number of open source packages out there continues to grow at an astonishing rate. You take a look at a ecosystem like uh, Node Package Manager, NPM, you look in the NPM registry and they have like... 800, 900 new packages every day. And that's that's not new versions of a package. That's, that's new, brand new packages that people have to go deal with. And along with that, there, there's lots more focus on the security of open source software out there. You go take a look at, for example, the uh, CVEs, the Common Vulnerability Enumeration for Miner, the, the publicly known vulnerabilities in uh, software. And Last year, in 2022, there were over 25,000 vulnerabilities in the database, which was up the the largest amount uh, ever from the previous year. It's about 5,000 over the previous year. And uh, that, that averages about 70 brand new vulnerabilities every day. And... Uh, it's it's a very hard for hard thing for teams to keep up with. That said, uh, open source software is uh, definitely something that should be used and uh, is great. It's great to work in the open source ecosystem, utilize open source software for for things in your your products, and to give back to the community. Now, there's a number of different things that you want to look at when you're choosing your open source. Uh, what would be the first thing that you would think of, Catherine, when you're thinking of, oh, this open source project, we want to go use it. Uh, uh, this is the first thing I should think of. What, what would you guess? That, that's a great question. You know, what, what, I would, what I would look at first, well, I'd look at a lot of things and vetting a, something to include in my project. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, I'll raise up to the top. I, I want to see the, the length of time it takes to address vulnerabilities. That's so, one so of that the big ones. That's definitely a great thing to to go look at. Um, I, I actually go up the stack even from there. Does the project actually have a maintainer anymore? Well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I want to see generally. Yeah, when's the last post? When's the last post in their issue queue? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you look at some of the the projects out there, and I, I've seen. Uh, 
products being used by teams where you go look at the upstream and the upstream hasn't had a commit or a response to any issues or questions for three, four, five, ten years even. And, you know, if something like that is uh, being used, it's it's really just completely unsupported software at this point in time. And yeah. and the world's changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. Yeah, that, that seems like, yeah, that would be a, a very red flag. Yeah, I was, you know, think, when I think about open source security, open source software, I think about all of the things that bring us into the open source community. It make I, I'm incredibly open source biased. It's frankly all I know. <laughs> but, you and me both. You know what? 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 What got us here? Right? Freedom, low barrier to entry. Anybody can 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 pull down a, a repo and start tinkering with it and pull in additional. Especially now, it's incredibly easy with dependency managers to just pull something else in. The collaborative nature of open source projects. All of these things are, are what attract probably people like us to various various uh, open source projects. And that's likely why open source software has become ubiquitous. I feel like we won. Yay. We, we, we being the open source community. Also, those of us who have been around a long time and spent a, a good chunk of energy uh, arguing for open source legitimacy, right? For so many years, especially early on. Absolutely. Um, so now here we are, open source is everywhere, right? And it's the way software is made. A lot of statistics say that, what is it, 90% of, of commercial software out there has some sort of open source component? Well, I, I, th- I think the, the, the way the statistic is really supposed to be read is that if you go grab a, a piece of software out there, about 80 to 90% of that piece of software that you have in your hands is, is open source. And, you know, the, the 10 or 20% that, that uh, uh, you know, is proprietary, uh, uh, you know, just utilizes that open source. And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and there's great reasons for that. I mean, you look at, for example, uh, you know, if, if you are somebody who's building your, your software, uh, you know, the, the choice should not be, oh, I want to create my own cryptography stack as opposed to going to use OpenSSL, for example. You know, you, you might have a fun time uh, building your own crypto, but it's never, ever going to be a, a stack that is able to hold up against uh, hackers and, and attackers who are looking to figure out how to exploit your, uh, your your crypto stack. You know, the professionals who have been doing this all of their lives and who have been uh, crafting software stacks like OpenSSL and GNU TLS, they still obviously run into problems all the time with new vulnerabilities. And uh, uh, if they have problems and you're not an expert, you're, you're not going to be able to do it. So, again, waxing nostalgic here. I know both of us have been around open source software a long time. How do you how do you think open the the landscape has changed in the last fifteen years as it applies to security? So it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I look at what was going on fifteen years ago, and, and just uh, uh, fifteen years ago, the the original iPhone was recently released onto the market, probably less than a year or so, and you go look at the changes that have happened because of an event like that, where the ubiquity of of uh, software and web applications on mobile devices is just there for people to use all of the time. I look at how non-tech people in my circle of family and friends have gone from being 
technology neophytes not ever really using computers or or uh, if they had to, you know, just email and things that are direct like that to using uh, uh, computing of some kind, whether it's mobile or, or uh, laptop, to do everything they do every day. You look at, for example, the explosion of web applications that have happened in those 15 years. Uh, web applications are what makes the world go around these days. Uh, if web applications yeah. suddenly went away, uh, the world would just halt. And, and the the security implications of going from, yeah, okay, here here's a few, uh, you know, popular banks who are who have uh, web portals that you can go use to everything is uh, based upon here you go pay for every bill you have through some kind of web application the uh, surface area of what can be attacked is just so much broader than it used to be yeah that's um so it's broader but are these security concerns new or is it basically the same old thing, just more of it? Or what? What are the new security concerns? There, it's it's interesting. So you go look at what has been done in the past to make things more secure, and I'll, I'll take uh, I'll, I'll focus on um, the the x86 software stack. Mm, okay. Uh, to, to, as an example, you know it used to be. Oh hey, look! Uh, back in the days of of MS DOS, uh, you were just running your your application, and you had uh, complete control of all resources of the platform. Then you had to say, "Oh well, just running everything uh, in in Ring Zero is probably a bad idea." So let's go ahead and make sure that there's separation between the, the operating system and applications. So you, you add a little bit of extra uh, separation in there. And then at the end of the day, you're, you're uh, looking at uh, your applications, but a attacker can't exploit uh, things because you now have privileged separation between user space applications and the operating system. But they find something new, like doing uh, uh, buffer overflows on the stack to be able to go figure out how to inject code and, and get their code in there to be able to go exploit the system. Uh, then Intel and others add uh, new uh, technologies to prevent buffer overflows. So they start looking at things like heap overflows or or, or SQL injection attacks or, or cross-site scripting attacks as people continue to find new technologies to help protect users from uh, being exploited by these various different exploit techniques. The attackers start looking at more and more complex things. And uh, that's that's a, a continued path that actually will will continue for the far foreseeable future. There will be uh, attacks that come up in five or ten years that nobody will have thought of at this point in time, or or thought, oh, it's going to be way too expensive or resource intensive to be able to go exploit things that way. Uh, suddenly, it'll become easier. Uh, Low hanging security fruit. That's. <laughs> <laughs> that there there be dragons <laughs> absolutely i mean you know at the end of the day uh, uh an attacker will go after the easiest way to be able to go uh, uh do the thing he's trying to get done yeah so i like you know speaking of statistics that i like to throw out uh, we see a lot of statistics thrown about around about the increasing number of vulnerabilities and the time mm -hmm. it takes to fix the vulnerabilities 
-hmm. and the huge, huge numbers of dependencies that most software packages have today. And then given, given how much software uses open source components, is it fair to say that these challenges are fairly universal, but, or, or what, what security challenges are unique to, let's say the open source part of one software? That's a great question. So I, I think there's um, a number of different things that, that go into thinking around that. So first part of the dependency problems are depending upon what ecosystem you're, you're trying to create your application for. Uh, for example, if you are focusing on a C application, uh, you probably only have a few libraries that you're using and they're probably almost all direct dependencies. But, you know, if you look at something like NPM or, or JavaScript applications, one of the things that you see in that ecosystem is you may pull in like uh, seven, eight different direct dependencies into your application that you need functionality for. And then those dependencies bring in tertiary dependencies that end up bringing in four, 500, 600 other open source libraries into uh, that application. And suddenly the application where you brought in seven, eight different things, you suddenly now have an application with 500 dependencies. And you probably don't know what most of them are because they're all third, fourth, fifth, etc. order dependencies that you did not explicitly bring in yourself. So it's, it's an interesting challenge Web applications all pretty much focus on JavaScript in, in the, the JavaScript ecosystem. So it's a big problem in that side of the world. At the same time, when you're focusing on things like creating a .NET application or a, a Linux C, C application, uh, it's something to, uh, uh, you know, it's something that you have to keep in mind, but it isn't something that you have to focus greatly upon. It's it's much more manageable. So going back to the the subject, I, I think I mentioned barrier low barrier to entry earlier. Yeah. So there's really there's again little to stop a developer from including a random package in their own software. What are and this is this is really where I you know I wanted to go to the meat of this conversation. <laughs> what are the most important best practices that we should all follow when evaluating code or projects we want to use? Like what is your approach to vetting? projects. I, we, we had it. We talked about it before. Obviously, we've got to have an active maintainer. So that's step one, right? And, and I only bring that up because uh, you go look around and it's surprising how many packages are being used by oh, people yeah. that don't actually have active maintainers. That That's definitely one, only one, but it's a very key one, obviously, uh, of the things that you go look at. Uh, there, there's a number of other things that I go look at as well. For example, does the project have a, a regular maintenance or patch cycle? So, for example, do they actually have a plan for when and how they're going to go do releases? Or do they just release all of their stuff, for example, out of master? That's a, a problematic way to develop because, uh, you, you know, if you're utilizing that software, uh, you actually have no idea if uh, what you're pulling from there should or should not be used in a environment where you need to be stable, um, uh, like a production environment, for example. So if a project doesn't have plans on how they go and release software and when they're going to go release software, or if they don't actually have releases, uh, that's kind of a problem. 
Another thing to go look at is, is how long has the project existed? If the project that you want to go use has only been around for a, a short little while, uh, like a month or two, you know, it, it might be um, the new uh, hotness to go take a look at and go use, but it, it probably has some security implications that people haven't focused on yet and, and will need to be looked at more closely. Whereas a project that's been around two, three, five, ten 10 years, they probably have dealt with most of the security implications of, of what they're using. That said, conversely, some projects that have been around for a very long time, decades, they have a, a different problem in that when some of the features they created were done, it, it was a very different ecosystem that they were deploying their software into back then. Uh, a great example of this is the the Bash uh, shell shock vulnerability, where it was found that you can actually inject code in, in, or make make uh, uh, a Bash script run malicious code by putting that code into an environment variable, and, and then Bash would execute that code. That seems like a great, you know, that provides great utility to a developer to be able to go execute code out of an environment variable. Uh, that said, from a security perspective, that is a, a questionable thing to do, but, you know, they did it 20 years ago. And so, you know, I could see why 20 years ago people would think, oh, okay, yeah, this, this is good and this should be fine. Whereas now you're like, wait, you want to do what? <laughs> One other thing that I want to bring up too is is you know when you're picking a project, it, you, there there is a very unintuitive thing that you need to look at. Has that project ever had a CVE filed against it? Um, a lot of folks would think, oh, it's never had a CVE filed against it. It must be secure. I would I would not say that. <laughs> no, no, but a lot of people would would leap to that and. and you know, what not having a CVE against a project really means is it means that a security researcher has never focused on that particular right. open source library. It lacks the scrutiny. Yeah. It, it lacks the scrutiny. And, you know, th there are just so many uh, uh, different open source projects out there. Uh, uh, you know, there's not enough security researchers to look at all of them. But, you know, if if you don't have a CVE against your project, it really means that nobody's looked at it. Nobody has any idea of the security in it. Hopefully you've been doing the right things, but nobody's gone in and verified it. But you just look at the number of open source projects out there. I was looking earlier today. Uh, this is this is even dated information, but uh, uh, in 2019, I think it was, NPM had 1.3 million open source projects in its registry. Um, wow. You know, how many security researchers would you need to have to go look at every single one of those and vet them? That would be just a huge number of resources. Yeah. Hear that, kids? <laughs> go into security research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and because of that, uh, you know, it's it's there's always going to be projects out there that that have not been looked at by a security researcher, and, and a great way to figure that out is does it have a CVE against it? No, oh, that's a good one. So, what do you like to look for in just judging the maturity of a project? So, there's obviously the maintenance level and the release cycle, but and you know how long it's been around. But there are levels of maturity that that are kind of independent of those factors, and I wonder. What you look for there? 
There, there are definitely levels of maturity that that vary between product projects. Pardon me. Um, you know, one of the things that you want to look at: one, does the project have they documented expectations about code contributions? What is acceptable and what is not? Or, or is it all just done by the seat of the pants uh, during pull request time? <laughs> Good projects uh, that have been around a long time. Uh, like, uh, for example, like the Linux kernel have very specific expectations around the, the code that gets submitted upstream. And a, a project like that that has well-defined expectations definitely is is on the mature side of the world. Uh, more active developers, more frequently giving code upstream is a, another great key indicator of the maturity of a project. The more people who are contributing and uh, pushing code upstream, uh, the the more mature a project ends up being. What, what I find funny is, uh, I, I see this a lot too, you see projects that uh, have just a single maintainer and you go look through all of the code commits and those code commits are, are all done by a single person, nobody else. And I, I look at that and I go, okay, one of the, the best ways to improve the quality of your code is to have all of the code go through code reviews whenever it's submitted upstream. But if it's a project with only one maintainer, there's no yeah. code review going on one of the best ways to, to improve your code quality is just have somebody else look at it. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people don't like to have their code reviewed by others because they're afraid of, of what somebody might say about it, or they're concerned that they'll be put down in that process. And that that's kind of silly, um, uh, not yeah, to poo poo their feelings the about it, but yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely the opposite. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's funny. One of the things, uh, I mean, I learn all the time. I've been in this industry for 25 years and, and in the open source community for 30. And, and I still learn new stuff every day. Yeah. I'm very fortunate in that I get to do that for a living, learn new things all the time. I, I don't know everything. And uh, uh, I'm reminded of that fact quite often by my wife. So. <laughs> Yeah, I always am reminded of there's a there's an XKCD, of course. There's an XKCD cartoon for everything, but in this Pretty case, it, it's it alludes to the fact that uh, software engineers and developers are all really bad at our jobs. It's not necessarily true. It's a funny cartoon, though. And what I my takeaway from that is always, but that's what code reviews are for. <laughs> please review my code, and please, uh, we'll figure please this out together. Yep. We'll figure it out together. Nothing will slip through the cracks. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, except that it does, which is why we're having this conversation. It, it um, does. I mean, it, bugs happen. You know, bugs slip through the cracks. It, it happens. We 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 are creating very very complex pieces of software, and uh, yeah. you know, n nobody is omnipotent. Unfortunately. Darn it. That said, there's there's a number of other things that I look at uh, for whether or not it's a, a good open source uh, project to go use. One, uh, is there a way to uh, securely submit security bugs or security mm -hmm. patches? You know, one of the things you don't want to do is if you think you found a security bug in a open source project is just go post that publicly. Uh, uh, you know, through a, a mail list or, or issue tracker that's public or something like that. Because the instant that that's public, it's suddenly a map for a security researcher to go figure out how to go exploit it. 
and, and write malware that utilizes that vulnerability. So you, you, you want to be able to go have a, a way of submitting security bugs privately so other people uh, can't exploit that information until there's uh, a patch out there that people can go uh, fix the problem themselves. Um, you know, does a project actually use something like uh, static code analysis uh, to remove bugs from uh, their their software? Uh, there's a great service that uh, a lot of open source projects out there use from a company called uh, uh, Synopsys. It's it's code.coverity.com. It's uh, free for open source projects to use. The Linux kernel uses it. Uh, I think there's like, uh, last time I checked, there was like 3,500 or 4,000 projects that, that go utilize that to be able to go uh, use static code analysis techniques, which which uh, uh, analyze your code in a number of different ways, looking for bugs that, that you may not have seen when you were writing the code uh, to begin with. And, and it's a, you know, a lot of people uh, complain about static code analysis because uh, it generates false positives a lot of times. That said, uh, it is a good and easy way to, to find brain dead dumb vulnerabilities that you have accidentally put in your code. Yeah. And, and you know, finally, this this sounds like a a, a little bit of uh, an unexpected thing that people don't necessarily think of. But does the the project have a test plan uh, of any kind? So so for example, once they're going to, to go do a release, uh, are there a set of tests that you actually go through to make sure that you haven't broken something in the code? Uh, for example, uh, in OpenSSL. When you're building OpenSSL, you can do uh, make tests, and it will run a whole battery of crypto tests to make sure that there are no new bugs that you might have accidentally introduced into the code base that uh, uh, you might want to know about. So you've covered it a ton, actually. Here you've actually you've, you've answered a few of my questions ahead. I think uh, maybe we'll dive a little bit deeper. But um, what about governance? Project governance. Do, do you look at that, that kind of thing? Uh, or at what point does that become a bigger concern? It, it becomes a bigger concern when the project is being utilized by a, a wide variety of, of folks out there. You know, you, you also have to look at um, why the project is out there in, in some mm. respects. Uh, for example... I've seen a number of crypto projects that are out there, for example, and I won't name anyone specifically, but I've seen a number of crypto projects that are out there because they were created as part of a thesis for a master's or a PhD. And while that's great and it's nice to have that code out there, that doesn't mean that you want to put that code in your product to go use for for your crypto functionality um, you have absolutely no idea what's been done uh, to help make sure that that code is functional and resilient and uh, uh, will will be resistant against attackers it, it was done for you know somebody's thesis that's great for them glad they were able to go do it that said you know some projects out there they are corporate funded which is great. I mean, you go look at like uh, uh, the Linux kernel, which is under the auspices of the, the Linux Foundation and, uh, uh, you know, kernel.org. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, good 
uh, corporate funding that's going into the process of keeping those code bases going. And, and for very good reason. I mean, uh, you look at the Linux kernel and and the Linux kernel runs uh, a huge amount uh, of the computing resources around the world. And then, uh, you know, there's some more serious community-focused projects out there that I think are, are also very important. Things like... Uh, uh, Fedora, for example, yeah, sure. Technically, it's it's kind of funded by it's funded by by Red Hat, but uh, you know it's really a community driven project out there. And, and same with Debian. Debian gets a lot of uh, of uh, uh, donations, but but Debian is a great example of of a true community oriented project that really shows what open source can really do. You, you mentioned tooling and, and static analysis tools and, and those type of things that can handily flag certain issues that, that we may have missed in the development process. And I, obviously those things are incredibly important, but I wondered if you could take us a little bit further into uh, build tooling, best practices, other things that you might recommend. So, you know, one of the things that I look at when it comes to tooling around uh, software development, it is, you know, not every software developer out there is or should be a security expert. They're focusing on, and rightly so, uh, getting their features done, yeah. doing the software they want to write or, or are being uh, paid to write or, or whatever. Uh, you know, they're focused on those things. They don't want to go focus on the security aspects. And, and I totally understand that. Yeah, uh, having been a developer for... I've got a for... JIRA ticket. To... <laughs> Just got a JIRA <laughs> ticket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Working through the ticket. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, having been a developer for, for 35 years, uh, uh, you know, I, I totally understand that. There's certain things I love to go write that I don't want to go deal with security on. Um, that said, uh, uh, the best way to help developers who just want to focus on their features is to make sure that the right tooling is involved in uh, their entire development process, ensuring that they are notified of security issues at the right time during their development cycle. Um, a great example of this that I see is, for example, uh, doing static code analysis at pull request time. There is a time in a developer's process where code review is the natural thing for them to be doing, and that's pull request time. And at pull request time, they're they're looking at the code, seeing does this comply with with our expectations? Are there any bugs in here? Uh, are there any other problems with the code? And you know, having a a little sidebar uh, next to the code saying, "Oh, hey, by the way, uh, there's a buffer overflow right here at, at line 12." It's it's a great time for them to be able to go. Oh, hey, this is the right time to go fix this. We haven't accepted the code into our code base yet, and we really want to go. Uh, uh, just go ahead and address this now. And it's great. Didn't have to think about it at all. I I, I know that there's a, a vulnerability here because of that, and that's the kind of thing that I really envision seeing long term is ensuring that 
all of the security tooling or, or, or the tooling that's related to security uh, uh, is transparent to a developer until the time that they actually need to know something. And, and we want to make sure that they know about that issue as early as possible in their development cycle. It's really hard to see teams that are still struggling with static code analysis where they're just doing it wrong. Uh, you know, they... they accept the code into the code base. Uh, they might do a, a scan with static analysis a week or two later. Um, at that point, maybe a week or two after that, somebody will look at the results and go disposition issues that are found. And then, uh, you know, by the time the developer who introduced the bug goes and looks at the code, you know, four or five, six weeks later, they can't even remember what they were thinking when they were writing the code having things shift left to as early as possible in the development cycle saves so much time for, for, for developers and trying to fix these issues. And it's also a, a way that it, it's better education for them too. So they can see these issues uh, as they pop up. Yeah. it's a good, good reminder. So, so here's another, <laughs> when do you just say we have to fork it? <laughs> um, uh, that's a good question. And, and you know, I, I, I assume that this is from a security perspective in that they're not, that, you know, the, the upstream is not doing the right things. Um, and from that perspective, I've seen this happen uh, a few times where one, uh, the upstream project has basically just died over time, for example. Nobody has been using it. I've also seen where upstream simply isn't uh, addressing uh, bugs, whether it's security or not. And, you know, in, in those cases, when those uh, upstream projects are kind of dying on the vine and not really doing the right thing anymore, as much as you may not want to, uh, it's it's time to fork it and, and go... Uh, uh, take over the uh, maintainership of that project. Now, in some cases, uh, you can reach out to uh, the current maintainers and say, hey, do, do you need help? Do you need somebody to, to come here and, and start driving uh, uh, maintenance of this project? And, you know, if they say yes, then that's great. And, and hopefully uh, the person that uh, uh, made that request isn't somebody who, who wants to uh, inject crypto mining software into uh, uh, the library since that has happened before. Uh, the the other side here is sometimes uh, the maintainers, controllers of a project just want it to go away. They, they don't want mm. anything to do with it at all whatsoever. And we're all you know, human. if, yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're all human and, and people move on. And, uh, you know, in some cases, the people who who were working on the project aren't even around anymore you know, without, you know, any way to, to be able to reach out to them. In, in those cases, yeah, I think it totally makes sense to fork a project if that code is important to you. One other thing I wanted to mention in terms of, we, we spoke a little bit about project maturity and, and, and that sort of thing, but, you know, I think there are, there are big open source projects that we all use and those are very well maintained and, and set a great example, but there are also a lot of important and useful projects that are closer to like sandbox stage or incub incubation. Maybe they aspire to have larger communities and, and, but they're not there yet. What do you say about evaluating those that are, 
let's say, earlier stage. They might be, in fact, ready for production, and a lot of people are using them. But I think, again, it, you, you find open source projects at varying stages, and there's probably a pass-fail where you're, you're willing to actually use the project, but then even there, there's a, there's a spectrum there's the there's the minimum viability, and then there's there's all the way up to you know mature governance. So how do you how do you address things at different levels? You know, it, it's funny because you you bring it up, and it, it is all on a spectrum, right? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. You know, e- even some of the most well maintained projects uh, might not be uh, you know all the way at the most governed side of the spectrum, and you have people who are just you know throwing their code out there and saying, "Hey, anybody who's interested, please please feel free to go go use this." And, and yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of projects out there that are maintained and uh, actively developed, but but aren't nearly as well recognized as as other mm-hmm. projects um i i won't name any specific ones because I, I i don't want them to feel like i uh uh insulted in any way but uh there there are a number of projects out there that you know have active commits who have a significant number of developers but you know, they haven't gained the mind share yet of the broader open source community. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and they are probably, you know, good enough to use for production. But honestly, if you are somebody who's going to be utilizing an open source project like that, you should absolutely go and actively become part of that community and go start contributing to that project in helping them become better. Because it's funny, I I get a number of folks who have talked to me about specific libraries uh, that have been around for for 20, 25 years. Uh, Things like glibc, been around for forever. And and they're like, well, you know, there's not much change going on because they've, they've perfected what they're trying to do. And that is not the case. Uh, no software is done. There's always more development that can be done. There's always more features that can be added. There's always better code to go replace existing code with. And, you know, if you're going to go start using a, a project, uh, you, you definitely want to go upstream and start contributing and, and being a part of that community. I love it. So what are you most excited about looking forward to what what the security what the open source security community is working on right now what excites you the most where where do you really want to like dig in and and, and learn more and maybe participate so there, there's lots of things that are going on uh, in the open source security community right now that that i am really excited about you know one of the things that developers don't necessarily understand is, is security and, and they're needs to be resources out there to help them better understand security concerns and to uh, better create secure code. And the the Open Source uh, Security Foundation under the Linux Foundation, OpenSSF, uh, is providing a, a lot of that kind uh, of content. Uh, another thing that the OpenSSF is, is currently doing that I'm really excited about is a project called OpenSSF Scorecard. Uh, scorecard is a way of being able to go uh, measure the maturity uh, and security of a project. 
and it's it's by no means complete. It's it's only on its second release, and there's a lot more features that need to be added to it. But going and being able to go uh, get a baseline understanding of the security and maturity of a particular project by going and running a tool against it, I think is uh, a very exciting possibility. There's a number of other things out there that I think are are going to impact the industry uh, and uh, open source communities in a very broad way. Things like uh, SigStore, where mm-hmm. uh, you know the proper way of of uh, being able to go cryptographically sign as well as uh, uh, cryptographically attest to uh, the source of software is important. The the software bill of materials that are happening, uh, SBOM everywhere, is uh, you know actively going on right now as part of uh, the OpenSSF in, in other places, and software bill of materials is going to be an important thing that people need to focus on here over the next year as the U.S. federal government requires it for all software that it, in products that it purchases, being able to show what software is actually inside the software that you're buying is a very important thing before before this has come into play you know uh, you wouldn't necessarily know whether or not for example you have OpenSSL in in the product that you just bought the iot device that is doing crypto and whether or not the version of OpenSSL that you have has vulnerabilities in it and so, you know, mm-hmm. it's important to see these things. There, there's a lot of very exciting things that are going on these days. And there's uh, the OpenSSF Day that's happening here soon at the uh, Open Source Summit in Vancouver. And we're going to be talking there about all of the different things that we're doing in OpenSSF, as well as uh, the Linux Security Summit and and open source contributions and how open source is uh, is working uh, in this day and age at the uh, Open Source Summit. Oh, cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Very excited about all these things. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, I I appreciate a, a few things, actually. One, um, in case anyone listening didn't know that, there is free training at the OpenSSF uh, website. You can sign up for it. It's, it's good stuff. Free training is always a great thing, in, in my opinion. And I think all, uh, all those things that you mentioned address the things that we've brought up in our conversation, right? S-bombs, you know, what's in your software? Know your dependencies. Yep. Uh, SS, OpenSSF scorecard Absolutely. helps you out with the vetting process. <laughs> so all of that work being done is is a good thing. Well, I think, you know, I think we've, uh, I think we've covered, <laughs> we've covered it. We've covered it. I, uh, I, you know, I think we all, open source developers, all of us just aspire to do it the right way, right? And that includes what we what we invite into our own projects. Absolutely. The one thing that I, I've always been heartened uh, uh, about is uh, developers do want to do the right thing. And, yeah. and if they know what the right thing to do is, uh, the secure thing, they'll, they'll go do it. Yeah. If we can agree on what it is. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Oh, well, thank you so much, Ryan. This has been this has been really good. I, I love these kind of conversations, having a real talk, developer to developer. So I appreciate, I, I appreciate it. Catherine. It's really good to be here.